Welcome to the section of our podcast we call In Conversation With, where we sit down with sports industry experts, women in sports, and thought leaders and pioneers within the industry. My name is Lorraine, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patricia. Together with our amazing guests, we'll be discussing working data-driven, increasing visibility for women in sports, and leveraging tools such as a sports customer data platform to grow your supporter base, get superior sales, and earn real revenue. So without further ado, let's meet our guests. Our next guest is an award-winning entrepreneur, marketeer, and investor. He was featured in Campaign Asia-Pacific 40 Under 40 2021 as a future-gazing mastermind. He's also the co-founder of Happy Marketer, where he helped scale business from zero to 10 million US dollars in billings over a decade without a single investment dollar. Prantik Mazumda has also consulted with global sporting brands and businesses like IMG, ESPN, Fox Sports, and Top Golf. And today he'll be sharing with us some insights into the present and the future of the sports industry. Prantik, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Lorraine, thank you so much for having me here. Very excited and uh, hello to everyone listening in. We're really happy to have you on the podcast. And as well, we have a special guest with us. Do you want to reveal yourself? Uh, thank you, Lorraine. Uh, I'm Anders Madley. I'm uh, responsible for partnerships at Datatouch. Yes, and um, Anders just wanted to jump into this conversation since uh, this is like uh, Anders's area of interest. Yes, but before we begin, we like to start off our sessions with an icebreaker. Are you ready for that? Let's do it. What's your favorite quote, expression, or motto? My favorite quote and motto, uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a quote from Mahatma Gandhi, basically, be the change that you want to see in the world. And the other one, which is again uh, linked uh, to, you know, was said by a Nobel Prize winner uh, from India, a very famous poet called Rabindranath Tagore is, you know, it's in Hindi or English, I mean, in, in an Indian language, basically saying, Akla Chalore, which basically means uh, be okay to walk alone. If you want to make that change that uh, is referred to in the first uh, quote, his suggestion is, you know, don't worry about following people or don't worry about consensus. But if you want to drive a change, lead the way, walk alone. Awesome. You are preaching to the choir, Pantik, because that is something that I believe in myself. So yeah, thanks so much for, for sharing that one. I have obviously just listed a host of accolades and achievements, and even then I was barely scratching the surface. What drives you? What makes you push yourself to the point where you're like founding a Happy Marketer? And uh, you know what, what drives you? As I reflect about my life in the last 15, 20 years, I think it's the desire to live up to one's potential. Now, of course, the next question would be, what is one's potential and how do you know what's one's potential? So, you know, it's I think it takes time to sort of reflect and know about one's strengths, weaknesses. And through that, you sort of start asking yourself, what is it that you want to do in this life uh, that the opportunity, you know, one is blessed with and the various privileges one is blessed with. So as you sort of figure out things about yourself, you realize what is it that you want to do and, you know, what potentials and what strengths do you have? So I think a fundamental driving force is that most of us uh, do things either for fame, fun, and fortune. And uh, 
And to me, I think, you know, as long as whenever I evaluate an opportunity, uh, I'm someone who's very gut driven. And I think intuitively I would look at it like I would tell myself or ask myself, and am I doing it uh, for the fun, for the fame, for the fortune? At least if two of those three or four Fs sort of get satisfied, uh, that's a good uh, that's a good motivation and a good uh, starting point for me. But I think fundamentally, you know, for something to be sustainable, the motivation has to be intrinsic, absolutely. So I think, uh, you know, more and more, I try and invest my time into things where I sense there is, uh, A, it'll help me live up to my potential, B, uh, there are some intrinsic motivators that'll sort of uh, see me through the course. Uh, what, what would be your uh, biggest failure in terms of business? In terms of my business? Yeah. I think a couple of things come to mind. I think one is on the risk management side. And what do I mean? You know, uh, five, six years into the business, we suddenly realized one fine day that a particular client, which is you know a business that I brought in, had grown to about 50% of revenue. Now, whilst that felt great, uh, what I hadn't learned and I had to learn the hard way is risk management because one fine day the client called and said, uh, you know what, we've worked with you for long. It's been great. Uh, it's not you, it's me. We are looking for a bigger partner and bang, within two months, we lost that piece of business, uh, which meant we had to sort of, you know, fill that huge hole. And so that was a big lesson. And we said, you know what, never again will we allow a client to go above 15 to 20% of our of our uh, revenue. So risk management was one. The other failure I would say is, I think just not sometimes not backing myself in terms of confidence and strength, meaning when it came to client negotiations, I think I used to get quite overawed that, oh, I'm working with this Fortune 1000 brand and the person on the other side must be, you know, one of these geniuses and hence I must sort of, uh, there must be some reverence and I must not negotiate hard. Uh, and, you know, let's start with a small contract and, you know, it will grow. Doesn't happen really that way. I think, uh, of course, this is something that one learns along the way, which I did is you've got to have respect for yourself, your team uh, and the work that you do. And you've got to negotiate hard but of course look out for a win-win outcome but not accept something that's you know win-loss because uh, once you start at that position it's hard to come back so risk management negotiating with large clients especially as a small business i think those are two lessons i would take uh, quite seriously yeah i recognize the the the, the issue and 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 the, the great thing with that would be like you will have the the great learnings or or the the benefits of the out, coming out of the failures Absolutely. You have worked with some big names in the sports industry. I mentioned ESPN at the beginning. Have you ever shared any insights that left people shocked, whether pleasantly or otherwise? Yeah, I think a couple that come to mind is, you know, across the board when we've worked with some of these, uh, you know, especially large sporting brands or sporting uh, broadcasters. I think, again, this is about six, seven years ago. I think one thing that sort of kept or sort of got people really uh, shocked or surprised is to, especially the traditional brands, is for them to realize the transition to digital. Uh, you know, for the longest time, they didn't believe that uh, people would consume sports content on OTT platform and pay for it, right? Uh, in fact, if you look at uh, most of the digital rights that were awarded, for example, I'm a big cricket fan. And if I look at eight, 10 years ago, when rights were being awarded, uh, it was primarily TV broadcast. And then digital rights would be given as a value-added free service. Fast forward 10 years later, you know, again, if I take cricket or the Indian Premier League or any of these sporting leagues in this part of the world or anywhere else, 
digital has become the core. So 10 years ago, when we started telling people that, hey, look, you know what? It is entirely possible that people will not only watch your sport on a mobile app or on YouTube or you know any digital platform and you know be willing to pay if the quality is good. I think that's something today it's like a no-brainer. But eight, 10 years ago, I think it was a massive shock. In fact, I was just recently speaking to a someone who manages a sports OTT platform in Pakistan, and he said the same. He said, look, this is I was giving him a Singapore example, and he said, you know. Pakistan is probably at that stage. Two years ago, they had no sports OTT platform. It was all driven by TV broadcasters and telco operators who had who didn't have too much of an incentive to disrupt the space. But you know, they took the plunge and they've proven it with a multi-sport digital platform that not only uh, you know, especially if your demography is young, they're mobile savvy. If your country has 4G or 5G or decent broadband, uh, the world is moving towards or has moved towards mobile OTT. So that's one trend. The other is business models. So if you traditionally look at the sports industry across sports, whether it's you know whether it's baseball, NBA, whether it's F1, cricket, football, whatever it is, broadly four revenue streams. You had broadcast, gate revenues. You had um, some sort of sponsorship, merchandising. But I think again, it took a while for people to sort of realize that uh, that there could be other business models. So you know, a few few years ago when we said, look. OTT subscription, that's a possibility. Uh, you could look at uh, digital uh, advertising-led mod models. That could be uh, a possibility. You could look at fantasy game. You could look at NFTs. Of course, NFTs are far more recent. But I think the fundamental uh, beauty of any sort of disruption is, you know, technological disruption is one thing. But to me, what interests me, and, you know, th that's the conversation that sort of puts people off sometimes or, you know, gets them surprised is different business models. And I think so these conversations that we've had four or five years ago, it's good to see them bearing fruit today. But four or five years ago, that sort of, you know, got people really startled, shocked or sort of sit up on the table and say, hey, are you really sure? You know, this is an old industry and are you really sure there's more money to be made this way? So, yeah, those are some examples. That conversation is still kind of relevant today where you're trying to push more sports organizations to really embrace digital and really embrace all the the sort of the business model side of things the fan engagement side of things the how do you sell more tickets more sponsorship packages more merchandise through digital so um it is still quite a, a relevant conversation have you seen any trends regarding cross uh cross sports conversions uh we have have some discussions with with, with larger clubs that actually have an issue because the club in itself is very siloed. Uh, they don't really have any cross connections between even women and men's sports, even in the same in the same sport type. Yeah, uh, this is again, especially with historic clubs, it's a big challenge because predominantly mm. it's been male male driven. You know, why just clubs? If I look at a sport like cricket, which has you know been you know been around for hundreds of years, ironically, uh, the very first few games were played by women. Uh, but uh, you know, as you would expect. You know, it's a sport that came from UK and, you know, it spread to the Commonwealth countries and it was very much dominated by uh, men, mostly white men. And eventually, you know, it spread to the colonies. And today, what's interesting is, you know, uh, there's great parity between uh, in terms of cricketing prowess and economical prowess between uh, both, you know, the home mm -hmm. countries such as UK, Australia, where the sport sort of kicked off, but also Asian markets. But to your point about women, you know, it's only last week that the Indian cricket board uh, sort of said, you know what, finally women will earn the same wages 
Uh, and you think about this, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, it's taken this long to make a decision of this sort. And I think it should not be surprising because it, it's true in our corporate world as well. There's a lot of disparity. So yes, I think some of these decisions are, you know, and I think it's to do with the cultural ethos of these organizations, the legacy who's running the show. And that's why I genuinely feel, you know, there's so much that you can do to sort of take a what's called a zero-based budgeting approach to say, hey, look, zero-based budgeting says just because you spent $100 last year on something doesn't mean next year you're going to spend 100 or 100 plus five more dollars. You should reevaluate and say, hey, maybe I just need to spend 80 or maybe I need to see 500. So I think to make incremental change is not the answer. And to come to your point of, you know, how clubs can sort of, uh, you know, cross-sell, collaborate, uh, plenty of opportunity. I mean, if I look at the clubs in this part of the world, you always will have one or two anchor sports or one or two anchor events. But to really scale, you've got to amalgamate different sports, different events. And there are so many interesting ways of, uh, you know, maximizing that. And it depends on the business model that you want to really follow. If it's advertising driven, obviously you want to have more eyeballs and hence it makes sense to sort of have an additive model where you mix different sports and garner larger audiences. And also to spice things up, for example, you know, and ideas can come from anywhere. I recently met the founder of a, a not-for-profit in India who's based out of Singapore. And, you know, he's using sports as a mechanism to connect people of different genders, as well as people from different socioeconomic backgrounds using sport. And that's the beauty of sports as a leveler. So, for example, you know, he goes to villages. And when I saw the tournaments in, in the schools that he's running, the teams are mixed gender, right? And the question again begs, hey, why can't men play versus women? Or why can't you have a team which has men and women, something like a mixed doubles in, in tennis or badminton? And then what he's also done across, uh, and this is for commercial reason. He said, look, when I just had kids from poor background, the big brands didn't want to sponsor because they're not the target market. So he did a training program. He said, look, I'm going to get the best uh, soccer players from village A, and I'm going to go to, let's say, Mumbai, an urban city, and I'm going to get the best kids of the same age from Mumbai who are well-to-do and let there be a match-off, right? You know, there's a nice sort of ring to it. You want to have kids from a, a different background sort of compete against the rich boy kids. And again, commercially, the big brands suddenly are, hey, you know what? I don't mind now sort of coming in. I can do some CSR. At the same time, there's commercial opportunity because uh, the parents of the rich kids could be a commercial market. And, you know, hopefully when kids mix, maybe they don't see the difference. Maybe they just want to play soccer. So I think there are, you know, it's just, again, challenging status quo, whether it's different business model, and matching different audience groups. So you're absolutely right. There is definitely, as long as one has an open mind, uh, one can experiment with all of these. Yeah. Absolutely. I know you've mentioned quite a few things, but when we talk now in terms of how the a sports organization is ran, for example, or certain business models, what other things do you think that sports organizations are maybe not doing right or that maybe they're, they're already kind of doing right? Yeah, that's a great one. You know, if I look at it, I think if I look at the larger sports, uh, you know, that are sort of prevalent, it's amazing to see the biggest leagues, the NBAs and the F1s and the, the tennises and uh, even cricket now, you know, permeate through various countries. But I think there are a couple of things that sort of stands out saying, look, some of these organizations have done a great job to globalize sport. And in fact, I think many of them have also figured that, hey, how do I make if I want to grow revenues and if it's advertising and gate revenue driven or broadcast driven, it's a numbers game. So many of them have tried to sort of uh, either gamify or, you know, make the sport more accessible to the larger family in the house and not just, you know, the male or the female. 
And so there is a bit of a confluence of sports and entertainment. So if I've seen that in cricket where, you know, the original format of cricket is a five-day sport. And, you know, it's it's hard enough to for for a true fan like me to sort of explain the rules of of, of a five-day game, let alone where one end in a draw. So, you know, to my American friends, they were like, why would you play a sport for five days where the end goal is to draw a match? Uh, but, you know, as the sport has evolved, the administrators have done a good job to sort of make it, there was a, there's a one-day option and now there's a three-hour option, which in fact is uh, having its World Cup as we speak right now in Australia. So I think a lot of the sports organizations have done a good job to stay true to the modern times, to, you know, with lesser attention spans and, you know, longer working hours. They're sort of adapting to it. You also mentioned women's sports. Um, where do you think, how do you think Asia is doing in terms of representation? I know earlier you mentioned that in India, for example, with cricket, women are going to get the same salary, sort of closing that pay gap. I don't think Asia is doing necessarily great when it comes to investing in uh, women's sports and giving options. It's really far behind. I think China is an exception. I think China, uh, China took a very strong approach towards you know generating olympic champions across the board one could question their uh, means and their approach but i think they've done a good job when it comes to ensuring that across swimming gymnastics and various other sports uh, whether it's you know man or woman uh, they've been given good infrastructure and opportunity but if i look at the broader other markets such as you know india or south asia as a block or middle east i don't think uh, current society and you know this is uh, you you can sort of see this at a broader inclusion of women at the workforce. I mean, it's quite sad that in, in a large country like India, inclusion of women or participation of women in a broader economy has actually been dwindling. And the irony is women are being educated at large numbers. In fact, women do, uh, are, you know, women outdo men uh, in schools, but moment they get married or they become moms, uh, there's a massive drop you know, in the workforce. And the same thing reflects in sport. Uh, so it's a long way to go, um, given uh, conservative approaches in society. Likewise, in the Middle East, Northern Africa, a lot of countries, again, perhaps due to cultural or economical reasons, I don't see uh, women. I mean, I can see women embracing sport as young girls, but I don't think there's a system that sort of nurtures the talent and invests in them and the infrastructure to sort of, you know, help them become champions and take this up as a profession. So at professional uh, level, I think Asia, especially the South Asian bloc, Middle East, uh, Southeast Asia, I think a lot needs to be done. Australia, New Zealand, once again, great to see a far better representation there in that part of the world. A lot to be learned from there. And I think that this this follows kind of a global trend because I believe in America as well, The you can see the statistics that around the age of 13, that's when girls sort of start, not stop playing sports, right? That there's exactly like you're saying, that it seems like that there's a system, the system is not able to retain girls in sports. It's not able to keep them, whether that's because of cultural reasons, whether it's because the system itself was not designed for, for girls who would later on become mothers or later on get married. I mean, that that is up for debate. But it, I think what you're what you're explaining right now really just follows a global trend of that women just don't girls and women don't stay in sports and participation numbers just drop at age 13. so in a sense they're they're joining the club in that sense which is um sad unfortunately 
But something that plays a huge part in sports is indeed technology. And we touched a little bit on digital earlier, but I'm curious to know what technological trends in sports you're most excited about. Yeah, I think sport, technology has the power to sort of disrupt industries in a good way. And I think the key word for me is uh, accessibility and equitability. And I think, you know, uh, the couple of things that I'm really looking forward to is A, the blockchain. I think the more, you know, different systems come on the blockchain, sporting contracts, administration, uh, or even, uh, you know, the, the financial elements as they get onto the blockchain, I think it, things will only get more transparent uh, because otherwise, I mean, you know, let's call a spade a spade with the Qatar World Cup coming in. We just know the kind of issues and controversy right from them being awarded the World Cup to how contracts have been managed. I think these are things that need to be challenged and questioned and, you know, need to be sort of disrupted. Uh, and I think that's where technology, especially blockchain, can help. The other is also, I think, you know, in terms of two other, uh, you know, buckets or verticals that I'm really interested on is uh, the democratization of education. You know, we have tons of education online platforms, your Coursera's, Udemy's, et cetera. But something that I'm looking forward to is uh, sports ed tech. And, you know, it's not necessarily about just learning how to play a sport, but more importantly, the ancillary aspects around sports. So today, for example, you know, if I want to learn sports marketing or sports law or sports nutrition, sports psychotherapy, in most parts of the world, we just people don't even know where to start. So I would love to see sports education platforms come out where there's good curriculum, good pedagogy, good teachers and trainers, a certification program that leads into internships and jobs. So I think that's another, uh, you know, use case of technology of to sort of democratize sporting education. And the last would be, you know, again, funding and sponsorship. I think today sponsorship is sort of driven by a few agencies, large agencies. But I'm a big champion of, you know, why, you know, we have uh, large crowdfunding, uh, you know, the ketos of the world. Why can't we have sports uh, microfunding and micro sponsorship opportunities? And I'm sort of seeing a few startups grow in this part of the world, which basically say, hey, look, if there's a new and upcoming athlete in the club that I'm part of, or even on a national level, can I? A, donate? Can I lend at maybe zero or low interest? Uh, or can I uh, buy a piece of equity? Meaning, can I, you know, uh, can I sort of buy a piece of someone's future career? Uh, so I could put in, let's say, $1,000 to support a particular athlete as a donation, as a loan. Or maybe I'm saying, you know what? I believe in you. I'm going to invest in you. Here's my $1,000. And tomorrow when you sort of become big, a big star, you know, I have maybe zero point. 001% of equity and I have potential to make returns. So I think uh, technology has the power to sort of connect fans and athletes, take the middlemen out, or if there are middlemen or middlewomen, it, you know, using blockchain, you can make that process more transparent. So blockchain, sports education, using uh, you know, online uh, learning and uh, using fintech uh, solutions for micro-sponsorship or micro-funding. May I ask um, how... Technology generates a lot of data, which can be utilized from a business model point of view. Where do you think the data would be best and in what areas? Fundamentally, let's start from the basic, right? If you're the club, you want to collect data about your members and their families and, you know, their interests. So there is static data and there's dynamic data. So static data is just a database of name, email ID, age, mm -hmm. interest, etc. You can have a dynamic version, which is about my interests, my behaviors, etc., etc. So having that customer data platform to kind of give you a holistic perspective 
of your club members, of your athletes, I think is powerful because I guess two examples come to mind. You can go to brand advertisers or sponsors and say, hey, look, you know what? Instead of you sort of uh, we putting up a big banner on our club uh, premise, why don't I sort of do personalized messages that, you know what, if it's, if it's MasterCard or Coca-Cola, we know who is the right target audience, which subset will respond the best to your sort of ad campaign. So instead of spraying and praying, why don't I sort of make targeted personalized campaigns? You know, that's at a club level. In fact, we already see, uh, you know, when you see these billboards and holding ads at clubs, when they are seen on television or online, uh, there are already technologies to sort of personalize, saying if the broadcast stream is, hap- is being shown in China versus India, the ads would be different. And that's mm-hmm. a function of data that one collects. So you're absolutely right. I think, you know, data is extremely powerful. All is- I would say is, look, you don't want to be drowning in data. You need to be able to collect data, clean it up, and you need systems and tools to be able to orchestrate personalized campaigns on top of that data. The technology is there. Do you think the majority is there? Again, depends on different parts of the world. So for example, in Singapore, in London, in Australia, in my limited experience, I've seen that maturity is there. There are brands that are looking to sort of find new ways uh, to do this or to find more efficient ways. Because when you're personalizing, the whole name of the game is you want to drive higher marketing effectiveness and efficiency of your ad campaign dollar. So I do see that. But again, a massive room uh, for improvement. And, and I and I think it, it starts with the clubs to even collect data. Even in these mature markets, many clubs, uh, to be honest, don't have digital mechanisms to collect data, to, you know, to clean that data, to sort of store and manage that properly. There are, I know so many clubs in Singapore, very good clubs, but they still use, uh, you know, Excel <laughs> sheets. And, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, and that's a very interesting conversation. I know that it, it, like you said, it all boils down to to different regions and different sort of. But I say that because the conversation of Web three, I always find so fascinating because on one hand, we have these forward thinkers such as yourself and many other people within the sports industry that are saying there's plenty of opportunity. Um, within Web3 to really help transform sports to sort of a new height of success. And then on the other hand, we have people that are still resistant to the digital sort of move, people that are still resistant to new ways of doing business that still want to do, just focus on what has been tried and tested, focus on the traditional way of doing things. So I find that conversation sometimes a bit of a challenging one to have in that sense because because of just the difference in just the maturity, right? Because the person that's interested in Web3, they would have sort of a higher maturity level when it comes to digital versus the person that's going, no, let's keep everything quite traditional. So what do you, how can we bridge that gap really? How can we have that conversation about the, the opportunities that, technology such as Web3, technology such as the sports CDP, which can help you collect all this data, clean it and analyze it and act upon it and do all the personalization. How can we just bridge that conversation and make it so such that the sports clubs are actually taking it in and they're, they're, they're able to then leverage all these new opportunities? Yeah, I think, you know, step one would be just firstly not sort of overwhelm the clients or the clubs with you know terminologies such as web3 and cdp because you know i think 
that's a challenge with folks folks like me in the tech industry where we love our jargons and you know there's crm and there's cxm and there's cdp and you know every two years we come up with something new and we can't expect the as you rightly said the market's not going to evolve at the at that same pace unfortunately so i think it should be a conversation about their business outcomes i think what i've generally found is you know every business whether it's a sports club or a sports manufacturer or anyone you know ultimately they operate on a formula called profit equal to revenue minus cost and so i think the the conversation has to be hey what are your growth ambitions how can i sort of help you drive higher revenue or reduce your cost because that's the language that they would likely understand and and then the cps and the web trees should be enablers uh, to sort of get there because uh, if we start with that conversation i think it gets difficult next is i think you know uh, we need to have a conversation uh, you know i think typically when we do some of these projects we do our literally our very first step is a discovery and a digital maturity audit discovery is to really uh, sit with the client do a quick a quick audit of you know people process technology etc to just sort of come to a common language to align as to let's say on a scale of 1 to 5 how mature are we digitally uh, and you know if both the client and i agree that hey you know looks like we are 2 on 5 overall uh and let's go down to the details of people process technology maybe our tech is 4 on 5 i have the cdp but my people and process you know are at 1 or 2 on 5 at least we've identified the gaps and then let's try and sort of plug those gaps i think very often what happens is we only start with t the technology part of it but you know technology is only as good as the people and the process you have and the alignment and the budgetary investments that we have so in short start with business outcomes revenue either you need to help increase revenue or reduce cost then do a digital maturity audit look at people process technology and get identify specific gaps and then have a project roadmap which is change management because you know to move from web 2 to web 3 sounds easy on paper for tech organizations but it's a multi year journey so i would look at saying hey you know what here's what's running and by the way we're trying to change we're trying to refuel a plane as it's flying right hardly ever do you get an opportunity saying okay let's shut down business for 2 years and we'll move from web 2 to web 3 so i think the maturity audit the alignment and then a change management process uh, to sort of make that change happen very very important to sort of take those baby steps else i think you get lost in the jargon and you get overwhelmed and that's such a beautiful analogy that you gave um trying to fuel a, a plane as a, as it's flying because yeah so then for the actual sports organizations themselves what practical tips could you give sports clubs for example on how to take in all these new opportunities and really just start yeah i think you know step one is i would say about awareness so you know typically what i've seen some clubs you know in the board of the club there's always you know in assuming the board has 7 8 10 people there's always one or two who are likely to be a bit more adventurous entrepreneurial you know i would look at those sort of leaders to say hey you know what let's start with a conversation uh let's not overwhelm them you know let's not you know create fear but maybe let's invite people from other industries or let's invite people from uh other sporting clubs that have done well and let's just listen in uh, you know if you listen in i think you start sort of wow okay someone's done it maybe i can do it too you either get inspired you get fearful there is some trigger for change that happens and i think getting that outside in perspective is i've often found it to be quite useful and so that's at a, at a at a process level or a cultural level the other is you know what i would 
look, tell any sort of sports club is once you do that, once you sort of get aware of, you know, what is the world in which direction is the world moving in, then I think it's important to sort of plot uh, either internally or externally, have discussions and plot a broader objective and vision that, you know, fine, this club has been around for 100 years, we have a lot of history, heritage, uh, whilst that's great, what does this club look like in 30, 50 years? You need to do a bit of scenario planning, right? So the reason I would say I would start with this is because you need a vision where, which is not about technology, but it's about the objective of the club and not just financial objective, the, you know, the brand and perception, the financial objectives, your community objectives. So once you outline that, you have a broad vision. You know what? In the next 30 years, this is what we should look like. Let's work backwards. And then, yes, then you sort of look at, you know, what technology can sort of help me get there. But I think it's very, very important that someone in the organization creates this, you know, needs to act as a catalyst for change, needs to get conversations going because uh, very often people get very myopic and people just look at, oh, I'm doing well today or, you know what, nothing's going to happen to me. I I will sort of stay uh, where I am. Uh, but as we have seen in different industries in today's world that, you know, it just takes a new disruption. It just takes a new entity. And within five years, you could be out of business. So someone's got to play that role inside and outside to create that inspiration, that fear, that sort of tension, healthy tension to say, let's look what the trends in the world are in our industry. Let's seek some inspiration and let's draw out a vision map. Let's do some scenario planning and then let's sort of work backwards that to get there. What sort of technology people and process do we need to invest in? But maybe let's just step back from all the sports stuff and now just talk about you. Like what what big or small things are you currently involved with? Like what are you what are you up to? Three things really. I think you know there is uh, I, I sold Happy Marketer, Rachit and I, my co-founder and I, we sold Happy Marketer to a global company called Denso. So currently my day job is with Denso. Um, in fact, Denso has a pretty big sports arm as well, so that's pretty exciting. But essentially, you know, my day job is again in the world of data-driven marketing, CXM, CRM, CDP, analytics, etc. Uh, that's what sort of keeps me busy 80% of the time. The rest, I sort of uh, have a portfolio of startups that I have invested in or advised. And so that's sort of, I keep a look at that portfolio. I keep, you know, try and help these founders who are trying to sort of, uh, you know, figure out scale-up challenges. Uh, that's maybe another 10, 15%. And uh, well, sports is very close to my heart. So there's there are a few sports companies in that portfolio, but there are one or two. So there's one called Rev Sports where I'm sort of actively involved. Where you know today, uh, you know I, I sort of shared three ideas, right? The whole digital video content, uh, sports education, and microfunding. As of right now, the sports digital video content, uh, ancillary content is doing pretty well. So I'm sort of involved there to ensure the content's doing well. There's good brand sponsorship. Uh, once in a while, I get a chance to go down to you know matches whether in uk i'm heading to australia for the world cup next week just to sort of support the team on content creation sometimes in front or behind the camera so yeah that's one particular sports entity that keeps me busy but apart from that core role is at denso and uh, the startup portfolio but to sort of round off this conversation if you could give anyone listening today advice on how they too can achieve their goals whatever they may be, what advice would that be? I think the advice to them would be articulate that goal. 
I think, you know, uh, a lot of times we have various different goals. We uh, think about it. We talk about it. But I think it's important to just put that on paper or digital or real paper. Break it down. Break it down into a few mini goals. And, you know, make it real for yourself. Put some uh, you know, rough, realistic timeline saying, hey, you know, here's my goal. Here are three sub goals. Alongside each of them, maybe in the next column, write down how much time are you willing to sort of uh, you know, give to achieve that goal. Uh, what is the investment that you're willing to make in terms of time and money? Uh, what sacrifices are you willing to do to achieve that goal? And the last thing is for each of those sub goals, just write one immediate next step process, process over results. So if I have a goal that I want to run a marathon, I can't achieve that tomorrow. I would break that down saying, let's start running five kilometers on Monday, Wednesday, uh, Friday. Then I would sort of put down saying, okay, to start running uh, from Monday, you know what, can I ensure that on Sunday night, my running gear, my water bottle, whatever else that I need is all packed and ready so that when I wake up on Monday morning to run and my body says, no, let's sleep for some half an hour more. Well, there's less resistance because, you know, at least you don't have to hunt for your uh, running gear. It's there. Right. So I think it's important to have that big vision, but break it down into realistic goals. But most importantly, have a process goal so that you can create a rhythm and with once you start following that rhythm uh you know at some point in time you will achieve that big goal or at least get somewhere near to it and at least that would be better than you know not getting anywhere else and anywhere at all and with that Prantik, thank you so very much for coming on to our podcast it has been an absolutely fantastic conversation my pleasure lorraine and anders thank you so much for having me and yeah, it's it's these conversations that sort of make you reflect, that make you think hard. And thank you for doing this. Uh, I'm sure all of these conversations, not just this one, but the other episodes, uh, I'm sure uh, they will sort of inspire a few sparks uh, and you know create momentum to sort of drive change in different ways. And as we started the podcast with, you know, whoever is listening, whatever change that you want in your life, community, club, or society, uh, remember uh, the power is in your hands. Be the change that you want to see in the world and take that first step go alone and i'm sure people will follow thank you so much if your goal is to get more supporters superior sales and real revenue then visit our website at datatalks.sc and fill out our demo form to experience firsthand how we can help you data talks more supporters superior sales real revenue